you could be sure to have the Titus passage, the, the second of the two, open before you, but it won't be hard to flick back to the Timothy passage. That would be great. Sam's already said we're thinking a lot about leadership and electing new leadership for our church. Uh, does anybody think leadership matters? Is it important? Ask a Man United fan, and they might have a view on whether leadership matters, whether it matters who's trying to to give a lead in a particular place. Leadership does matter. I think most of us recognize that. It matters at a national level when we elect our governments or at an international level as they uh, work together. It matters in our workplaces. Uh, If you've sat under good leadership in your workplace or under bad, you'll know what a huge difference that can make. It matters in our homes, and it matters uh, very much in the church. And that's why we're going to take uh, a little bit of time these next couple of Sundays to think about leadership in the church uh, before we uh, begin to go about electing a new leadership here. I need to explain a little bit of the process that we're in the middle of, but also uh, the context that we find ourselves in here just at the moment. So, The first stage of the process of electing new elders, that's one that we've already completed here. And you might remember we did some stuff in the the last part of last year, uh, drawing together our voters list. That's the first step in a Presbyterian church uh, to establishing who can participate in an election of elders. Uh, So we've we've done that part of the process. We, We know who can vote. Uh, We also need to be clear, of course, who we can vote for. And the congregation, uh, uh, the the Kirk session, sorry, is working on that just at the moment, establishing uh, a list of all those who are eligible to be voted for. Tomorrow night, we're going to hopefully sign off in our Kirk session, the final voters list, uh, which will both be those, which will be a list of those who are entitled to vote, but also, therefore, those who would be eligible to be elected as elders. The law of the church requires that I read a little bit from the code for you. Um, if you're familiar with the Presbyterian code, it's, it's a great read, and you should probably read the whole thing yourself sometime. It's such a great... I, I don't feel I could. I think the excitement would maybe be a little bit too much for a gathering like this, so I'll let you get on with that. But I'm going to read the parts that I'm required by church law to read here today. So if we could have those slides on the screen, Graham, if they're... Uh, ready for us. Paragraph 30 and 31 of the code. So, the duty of the ruling elders as members of Kirk Session is to work together with the minister in the oversight and government of the congregation for the upbuilding of God's people in spiritual fruitfulness and holy concord and for the extension of Christ's kingdom among all people. It's not probably the language we would choose to write it in today, but I hope it's relatively uh, uh, easy to understand. Then another couple of clauses of that particular paragraph. Ruling elders by their calling share equally with ministers in responsibility for practical witness both within the congregation and in the wider world. That's interesting actually, that one. We mightn't necessarily have seen it that way. We may have been involved in churches where it felt like the the minister was way out in front on their own in terms of responsibility, but that's not what the 
the, the code says. It's suggested in a Presbyterian church, elders uh, together with the minister share that leadership. So the third clause there, the discharge of his duties, each elder should be assigned a district or special responsibilities within the congregation in which he may particularly represent the Kirk Session by visitation, private counsel, and report to the Kirk Session. Sorry, but the Kirk Session may assign other duties as it sees fit. That's something that we take seriously. So each elder isn't just a member of a collective. They also have individual responsibilities, uh, usually looking after a group of people, a district. So those are all things that we recognize. If we move on to paragraph 31. Paragraph 30 there, if you think about it, it describes the work of an elder in a Presbyterian church. Uh, Paragraph 31 then deals with a different subject, and that is who would be eligible for this post. Uh, So we have it on the screen there, yes. To be chosen for the office of eldership in a congregation, a person must be a voting member of that congregation and a regular attendance at its ordinances. He should be circumspect and exemplary in his conduct both in the church and in the world and of acknowledged piety, endeavoring to maintain the worship of God in his family and held in esteem by the people. Women shall be eligible for election on the same conditions as men. Again, it's, it's older language, but I, I think it's, it, it should be something that we can understand. And then you'll see the, the last sentence there, which describes the position of the Presbyterian Church on women in leadership, where the church is open to uh, women in eldership. Not every Christian church would agree with that position, but that is the the position of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. A couple more sub-clauses. These get harder to understand, but I hope they're not quite as crucial for us. A ruling elder shall not hold office in more than one congregation at the same time, unless as member of an interim session. I could spend five minutes trying to explain that to you, or else we could just leave it and deal with it as it arises, and I'd suggest we'll do that. And the the next uh, final clause there, uh, subparagraph two, shall not apply to retired ministers who may be members in the congregation. I don't really know what that means. Um, Again, if it arises, we'll deal with it there and then. But you've seen now the the requirements of the church. You you know a little bit more about what an elder uh, in a Presbyterian church is intended to be and to do, and you have some idea of their eligibility. Let me tell you quickly how this election is going to run. Next Sunday, the 19th of January, all qualified voting members will be able to take home with them a, a voter's list and a form allowing them to nominate up to six names for the Kirk Sessions consideration. So you get to look at the list, choose up to six names, and submit them. Uh, they need to be returned to us by 8 p.m. on the following Sunday, Sunday the, the 26th of January. And I'll talk about that process in a little bit more detail next week. But in the meantime, here's what I want you to be doing if you haven't already had a chance to do it. Three things. Listen to God's word. Don't run with the assumption that I already know what an elder is and should be, but be open to to learning both today and next Sunday. Secondly, be praying, asking for God's guidance, that God would show you when you've heard, seen in his word what an elder is, 
help him to show you who, who might fill that role. And thirdly, and crucially, do take the opportunity to vote, to make your nominations. Uh, don't let's have a, a low voter turnout, as they always talk about after a, a public election. Uh, let's be involved. And I really want to reinforce that. Don't imagine that you're too old or too young that you haven't been here for long enough or that you've been here for too long, if your name is on the list and you're entitled to vote, we would like you to do that. So please do. I've talked there briefly about the process. Let me talk quickly about the context into which we're electing new elders at Kirkpatrick Memorial. I want to talk very briefly about the existing leadership here in the congregation. Ten years ago, when I came to be uh, the minister here at Kirkpatrick Memorial, I was persuaded by the quality of the elders who were here that this was a place where I could come and serve. The church here was in a bad way. Our denomination had questioned at that point whether this church actually had a future or not. Too few members, each with too many candles on their birthday cake, is how one uh, member at the time described it to me. Friends and colleagues had warned me uh, not to come. One had said, you know, that's the last place on earth that I would send you. And whenever I came to the church on a Sunday morning like this and saw uh, the congregation, I think I understood something of what I'd seen statistically and heard anecdotally. The church was in a bad way. But despite all of this, Claire and I sensed that that God was calling us here, and a large part of what was drawing us here was an opportunity to work with the Kirk session that we encountered in that interview process. We soon discovered people who'd been praying for the church all their lives, and we knew that they would pray for us if we came to work here. They'd been trying to reach Ballyhackamore with the gospel, and we knew that if we made the same efforts, they would join with us and support us in that. They loved Jesus and they wanted him at the center of their church. And as Claire and I thought about that and dwelt on it, we we discovered that there might just be a partnership where we could join with those leaders and work alongside them. So that's what we did in the autumn of 2013. And it was great. I came here... um, I was 31 years old at the time. I came here and started to do church leadership with a group of people who, I hope they don't mind me saying, would have been old enough to be my grandparents. And we set off together, and it was a wonderful partnership from day one. That leadership team has grown in the last decade. We have had two elections. We've elected 11 new elders, but the ethos that I just described hasn't changed in fact, I think we've had more time to reflect on it, to, to streamline our thinking about it. We want to be a church with Jesus Christ at the center, reaching out in his name to this part of East Belfast. That's our commitment. That's who we are. That's what we want to do. So when we're electing elders, that's the kind of person we want. Somebody who can add and play their part in that team. Okay, I've talked about the process and the context. Let me quickly uh, take you to to one of these Bible passages. 
So if you have Titus chapter 1 open in front of you, that would be very useful. I'm going to tackle two questions these next two weeks. First one is, what kind of a person ought we to elect into leadership? What kind of person should we choose? And secondly, what kind of leadership should they be giving? So what kind of a person? That's this week's question, and we'll move pretty quickly here. Paul's writing to Titus, who's an understudy of his, who's been left to establish the church in Crete. And he begins his letter. You'll you'll notice that this passage we're dealing with comes right at the start of the letter. It's like the first thing he says after the preamble. Because it's the most important advice you could give to anybody who's starting a church, he says, verse 5, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Titus, nothing, nothing matters more than establishing a godly leadership in the church. John Stott highlights the importance of this instruction. He says the main way to regulate and consolidate the life of the church is to secure for it a gifted and conscientious pastoral oversight. We read two passages here this morning. But I'm not going to deal with the Timothy one in any great length, but I wanted you to see it. The reason being that Timothy and Titus are both Paul's understudies. They're both young men who have partnered with Paul, but then Paul has a mentoring relationship with them, and he teaches them how to lead churches. And in both cases, this issue of how to elect leaders is of paramount importance. So it's there in 1 Timothy 3, and it's there in Titus 1. Paul just wants to be absolutely sure that these churches, whether they're in Ephesus or Crete or any other part of the Roman Empire, have godly leadership. So I hope hope the importance of this is starting to just rise and rise and rise with you. Nothing more important in the church than a godly leadership. In verses 6 to 8... Titus tells us what kind of people these elders should be. He gives a really long list, 15 uh, criteria in total. I'm going to spend about 10 minutes on each of them. And no? uh, Okay, we'll see if we can do it quicker than that. I'm going to split them into three groups. I see a a little thematic stuff going on. The first group focusing on the elders' home life then the second group focusing on vices that the elder shouldn't possess, and the third on virtues that he should possess. So let's, let's look quickly. Part one, home life. The first quality there is that the elder should be blameless. And actually that sums up the whole list. Paul's basically saying that the elder should be blameless, and then he's given 14 different expressions of that. He repeats the requirement for the elder to be blameless in verse 7 just to reinforce its importance. Uh, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Then he moves on to talk about the elder's home life. The husband of but one wife. That is, has this person been faithful to their spouse? Does this person that you're thinking of appointing have a, a pure reputation in their conduct, their, their sexual conduct, in their relations with the other sex? Is this a person whom you would trust implicitly in that regard? If not, don't choose them. 
Just one thing before we go on here. This passage suggests that the elder should be a man who's married with children. Is that, is that what we're saying? Well, the answer to that's no. Paul's writing in a very specific cultural context here. And in these days, it would have been absolutely unheard of for a woman to be in leadership. It would have been almost unheard of for men to be unmarried and for them not to have children. So therefore, Paul's writing within the expectations of his own culture, who would qualify to be an elder. We live in a, in a different context, and there's a much greater level of equality between the genders. I read that paragraph from the Code a moment ago, and it was very clear that women are eligible for the post of eldership in a Presbyterian church. But there's also no requirement that any elder be married or that they have children. I'd put it to you, therefore, that men and women, married or single, with or without children, are eligible for the the role of eldership in this church, so long as they display the kind of character which Paul describes just here. The next section there, a person whose children believe. Let's run with this assumption that the elder does indeed have children. Do his or her children believe? There's a logic here. And John Stott, again, puts it like this. He says, the elder can hardly be expected to win strangers to Christ if they fail to win those exposed to their own influence most, namely their children. Can I encourage you to recognize the logic of that and yet to take some care with how you apply it? There are biblical exceptions to this rule where people are wonderfully godly leaders but their children do not believe. I'm thinking probably paramount in my mind is Samuel. Samuel had an amazing, godly, consistent, prophetic ministry. His sons were a dead loss. Samuel was never at any point discounted from the role that he'd been given in the leadership of God's people. So Paul's quite right, I think, to draw our attention to the response that a person's children are making. But the emphasis here, I think, is on the life of the parent. Are they doing all they can to see their children come to faith? Would you reasonably expect their children to be walking in the ways of Jesus, given the example that they've been given in their parents? I think those are the good questions. The next criteria there, whose children are not wild to the charge of, sorry, not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. When I was rereading this this week, I started my resignation letter. Um, This follows on from the previous idea. If you cannot lead in your own home, how can you lead beyond it? But again, some wisdom and some grace in how we apply it. Look at verse 7. Since the overseer or an elder is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. When Paul speaks here about being entrusted with God's work, he's using a technical word. 
It's the word, um, he's describing the process of a, the head of a household handing over the day-to-day running of that household to his household steward. Big thing in the Greco-Roman world. This entrusting. The head of the household hands it over to somebody else to run it in the everyday. So this household manager, this household steward, had a lot of responsibility for the the day-to-day running of the church. Paul says that God chooses to do the same. He's the head of the church, but he allows others to exercise leadership on his behalf. But what a responsible role. Do you see now how the stuff that we've been looking at in verse 6 flows naturally into verse 7? If I can't offer some sort of leadership in my own home, how well am I going to lead people who are beyond my family ties? I said we'd pause when we came to this word blameless for a second time, so I think we should do that quick for a moment. We're not talking about perfection here because, as I've already hinted once or twice, that that would rule all of us out. The word here means without blame or unaccused. And I think what we're talking about here is something like what we have in the Ulster phrase, you wouldn't hear a bad word said about him. You've heard that said about him or about her. Never heard a bad word said about her doesn't mean the person's perfect. It just means that onlookers who observe their lives see their integrity. They see their, their desire to live well. They see their, their honesty. That's what Paul's talking about here. And it's the basic gist not only here, but of that other passage in 1 Timothy 3. I think it's actually a little bit more explicit in 1 Timothy 3 because Paul says there in verse 2, that an elder should be above reproach, and in verse 7, that they should have a good reputation with outsiders. Think about it. Anyone we elect here as an elder and is known to be an elder in in public, the, the public hold us accountable to the standard of our leadership. In the English Premiership, there's a a thing that a footballer or a manager can be done for, and that is bringing the game into disrepute. Paul says, don't elect anybody into leadership who would bring the name of Jesus Christ into disrepute. So that's part one, uh, the, the home life of an elder. Paul turns his attention then in a second group of qualifications to vices that an elder ought not to possess. If you keep reading with me, they they ought not to be overbearing or quick-tempered. These two come together the way Paul's written them, and I think that makes sense. The same kind of person who tries to bully and to force their way overbearing is the same person who freaks out and gets angry when their will doesn't succeed. He says, if you're thinking of electing a person like that to your leadership, don't do it. Don't elect a person who is overbearing or quick-tempered. They mustn't be given to drunkenness or violence. Again, Paul's writing these as, as a pair. Uh, drunkenness is, and binge drinking is not a, a modern phenomenon. 
it was going on in Crete and Ephesus. And Paul says that person isn't well equipped to be a leader in the church. If you've been around this church before, you'll know my position on, on this. I have no problem at all with Christians uh, having a drink, using alcohol uh, responsibly. I, I just don't see that God's word even suggests that. But drunkenness is entirely out of uh, the range of what God wants for us. Uh, a person in that position would not be an appropriate leader in a church. They mustn't be pursuing dishonest gain. And I suppose the question there is, would you trust this guy to look after your investments? Would you be happy for them to have your purse strings? Have you any question marks in your mind about how they deal with money? If you do, don't elect them. In verse 8, Paul deals with a third category in this list of criteria for eldership, and there are positive qualities that an elder should possess. Hospitality, they should be hospitable. This, this just keeps coming up in, in our New Testament studies, uh, wherever, we, wherever we read. So in Romans 12, Paul urges the believers to practice hospitality. We saw it just recently, a week or two ago, in 1 Peter, where we were encouraged to offer hospitality to one another. There's something about that. There's something about the kind of person who's willing to open their home. Because in my experience, I think that's likely to be the kind of person who's willing to live an open life. They're willing to share themselves with people. And it's a quality that's valued right throughout the New Testament. It's a quality that we value here in Kirkpatrick Memorial as, as we establish our network of smaller groups. An elder is one who loves what is good. If, if we were taking time to preach the whole book of Titus, we'd notice that goodness is a real theme throughout the book of Titus. God wants our good lives to show his beauty to the world. But we have seen this in other places recently. So if you're here a fortnight ago, you'll know I preached from Jeremiah 13 about God's desire to wear us like a, like a coat or like a suit for his glory that we would make him look good in the world. Well, that's what elders in the church are supposed to do. When you look at this person you're thinking of electing, does he or she make you think God is great? Do they make God look good in your eyes because of the kind of people they are? Do they attract you to God? We're nearly done. One who is self-controlled. That was a big deal in pagan writing. They loved the discipline, the stoicism, the self-control. Well, the qualities of a church leader aren't to be any less. They're to be different and they're to be more, but they're certainly not to be less. Self-controlled. They're to be upright and holy. Those two things um, often come together. Uh, and very quickly, what, just to point out to you, I think uprightness, we might say, is to do with a person's dealing with other people. Are they a respectable, upright person? And holiness is to do with their relationship with God. Are they both of those things? Are they in a right relationship with God 
and with other people. And disciplined. Um, The form of this noun here is the last of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit has this idea in it. What might that mean for us? Maybe you wouldn't have thought of this. Well, if a person isn't disciplined, if you know them to be extremely casual and unreliable, that person's not going to be not going to be ready for the responsibility of leading other people. Don't elect them. Don't nominate them for the post of eldership. At the end of this long list of criteria, we're told of one more duty that falls to any church leader. They must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught so that they can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. An elder in a church needs to be a lover and an upholder of the Word of God. They need to know it so that they can correct anybody who doesn't, who's maybe involved in contradicting it. They need to know it so that they can teach it to others. So let's nominate people who love God's Word and will will long to see it right at the center of our life together here. Just now I'm going to try and summarize this list, but before I do that, I want to point out that this list in Titus 1 isn't exhaustive. It's very like the list in 1 Timothy 3, but there are a couple of differences. A couple of the criteria from the Timothy list are left off here. And Timothy has a couple more that Titus doesn't have. So in Timothy, we're encouraged to see that an elder shouldn't be a lover of money. It's not on this list, but it is on the Timothy list. Makes sense, doesn't it? If you worship money, how would you help other people to worship God? Second, an elder shouldn't be a recent convert. I think that's well worth noticing. A person we're thinking of nominating should be mature in their faith. Sometimes a person wonders, you know, is there an age limit? Can a person be too young, too old to be an elder? I think that's worth uh, considering, but probably an even better question is, how much does this person demonstrate maturity in Christ? How much do they demonstrate maturity? Uh, That's an important consideration. I'm sorry this has taken a little bit of time today, but I am wrapping up just now. Those passages would be good to have open before you next week whenever you have your voters list. It would be good to reread them and reflect on them again. But it would be easy to get lost in the detail here with so many different criteria. Let's take a step back and see what's really at the heart of all this. In Titus chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, we have criteria for church leadership. And you'll notice a really remarkable thing. Particularly if you compare this with like a job specification. If you've applied for a job recently, you'll know what I mean. It's one of these newfangled ways of, it tells you who could apply for this job. Look at the job specification for an elder. You don't need any particular number of GCSEs. Don't need a degree. Don't need a PhD. 
doesn't say anything about how successful you are or how wealthy you are. In fact, not many of these qualities on the list really refer to a person's abilities or skills at all. What Paul encourages Titus to look for when he's appointing elders isn't somebody who can do amazing things, but somebody who is something special. He's looking for character rather than ability. Men and women who love God, who'll not only uphold his reputation, who'll actually enhance it before a congregation and a watching world. Folks, if we're willing to take God's word seriously here today, and, and, I, and I, I know that that's, that's what we want, that's our desire, then we'll know that integrity matters more than anything else. Before we look at a person's status, their talents, their abilities, we'll want to be sure that they're godly and trustworthy. When you're looking for elders, God's word says, forget about reputation. Go for character. Let's pray.